Hello, welcome to Origin Story. I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunt. This is a bonus episode, but it's not just for patrons, it's for everybody, uh, because we thought that this was a, a, one of the, the discussion topics of the summer. It's the movie Oppenheimer, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, um, which is a very useful hybrid of our nuclear war episodes and our McCarthyism episode. Yes, it did, uh, the whole thing did feel like a live-action origin story. It really like, did, yeah. it really did. Now, Ian, <laughs> I saw it uh, at Packed House opening weekend, and what I was really aware of is that I've read the book that's based on by mm. Kai Bird and, and Martin Sherwin, uh, American Prometheus, and therefore I came in with a lot of information and also an awareness of how faithful it is to the book and to the facts and actually how little invention there is if you're used to watching you know biopics written by like Aaron Sorkin for example where like or Peter Morgan and mm-hmm. if, everything is pretty much up for grabs as long as it uh, tells you the, the deeper truth whereas this is <laughs> this is this is very very accurate but then I I felt like that's a very specific way to watch this movie through the prism <laughs> of the book through the prism well particularly for me of having to like write loads of stuff about you know for the book about this um this topic so you haven't read the book, but you have done lots of research for nuclear war. So how did you take to it? I love this film and I love the fact that it exists more importantly than anything, as I just sort of thought like I was kind of oddly proud to live at a time where you could have like a, a summer blockbuster, mm. you know, which is making huge amounts of money with huge audiences, which is basically like a period piece about quantum physicists. <laughs> Just think like, what a fucking thing it's to have a- accomplished. And I think no one but Nolan could accomplish that. No one has the status and the interest, that that unique combination to, to have done that. And you sort of think it's the kind of thing that in 20 years time they'll look back and be like oh isn't that incredible that back in the day they used mm. to have like blockbusters like that even though it's not strictly true also, it's quite it got, a rare occurrence it got the barbie boost as well it got the which barbie certain, boost which yeah. certainly helped yeah although unfortunately people weren't cosplaying when they went to see oppenheimer although i was i did think actually for the first time in my life that those very high riding 1940s right. suit trousers are actually quite a fetching look oh yeah and that i would quite like to replicate it now. I, th- I thought he looked fantastic he did look very good indeed okay on the book part and I think this is going to be a distinction of whether you read it or you hadn't. I didn't want that film. I wanted a different film. And you can imagine the film that I want, which is I want the film about uh, someone who invents the genocide machine and then cannot deal emotionally with their invention. And I think that story hasn't been told before. And I'm obviously deeply fascinated by it. And I can't think of anyone better to play it. And I wanted that. So for, for about two thirds of Part this film, of that. About two-thirds of the film, I was very, very happy. We should put spoilers out here, by the way, but if you don't know what happened over well, yeah, half a century listen ago... To a, well, don't, and also, <laughs> don't listen to an Oppenheimer podcast if you haven't seen Oppenheimer. So we are going to do spoilers. The last 45 minutes or so of the film, when it becomes much more sort of McCarthy-tinged, is the much less interesting element to me and one that I have seen before. And actually, so in, as we went into the last third, I was considerably less invested. And I realized I'm seeing an adaption of a book. Of, I'm basically seeing a biopic, whereas that wasn't actually what I wanted. Right. What I wanted was that moral crushing sense upon him, which I got a lot of, but we sort of t- tended to lose it towards the end. I love the whole thing because, you know, I think I'm just interested in like in, in all of that stuff. And I think that it, I think, well, it's just so important because that's well, that, I mean, that's what happened. The reason why that security hearing happened and they tried to sort of crush him is because his way of dealing with his uh, 
chronic ambivalence. I mean, just the most extraordinary ambivalence. It's not like he was, you know, it's like super gung-ho and oh no, what have I done? That really wasn't the story of Oppenheimer. The story was ambivalence. This is the reason why he he, he kind of dedicated himself to um, not full nuclear disarmament, but trying to prevent uh, an arms race. He was certainly not the, um, he was not the most kind of peacenik compared to someone like Leo Szilard. Mm. But there was that, there was his opposition to the hydrogen bomb up to a point. But even then, when the solution was, he'd said, was, was too te- became too technically sweet to sort of block anyone. <laughs> so it wasn't like a full moral, oh, this is an evil thing and we shouldn't do it. That is how he dealt with it. Now, whether you wanted him to deal with it in a different way, uh, that is how he dealt with it. And this was the consequences. And that the, the Louis Strauss represented the, you know, the, the sort of US government position that like, we're going to do this and please stop getting in the way and whining and acting out your psychodrama in a way that threatens national security. So that is, to me, the extension of that story as it played out in real life. I mean, obviously, that's, that is what happened. My thing is that with, with all these kinds of stories, you, you decide which aspect of the story you're going to tell. And there's a sort of moment towards the end of that film where these two pathways are brought together by his wife. He says, you know, if you just think that by putting yourself through this punishment, mm. it absolves you, mm. you know, it, it won't. So there is an attempt to bring all this stuff together. It's just that the, the McCarthy story in general is one that I've seen done a lot and very, very well. So naturally, when you get back, when you get into that place, you're like, okay, we're in a committee hearing. Someone's reputation is going to be destroyed. These sort of swinging uh, chimpanzee ignorance are going to destroy a very fine man of, of great. And it's just like, it is a, it is the kind of story that usually gets me very excited when I'm watching a film because I'm, I'm interested in it. In this film, because for the first time, and I think probably, you know, one of the last times we're going to see a very different story, one that has only happened mm-hmm. once in the history of the world, and that was being done by people at the height of their powers, both in terms of filmmaking and Killian Murphy, whose face uh, is yeah. one of the most extraordinary faces and can convey so much. And, and in fact, the whole film relies totally on mm. his face. Then I just sort of wanted to stick with that. And the more we got dragged off, the sort of more frustrated I became. It's also a, a sort of a question of pace in terms of the qualities of the film. I, I don't know anyone apart from Nolan who has such mastery of tempo in film. So what's a sort of extraordinary accomplishment really is that you take a three hour film, which is basically men talking in boardrooms. Mm. You know? I mean, there's not much else to it. And you're like, it feels propulsive and it feels exciting and it feels electric. And I think very, very few people could have accomplished that. So where... I found it useful to sort of read the criticisms, both kind of proper reviews um, and just people chatting on the internet, <laughs> was that it really clarified what this is and that sometimes you've got people going, well, why doesn't it show uh, Hiroshima? You know, why doesn't it mention, this is a very geeky science reporter thing. Mm-hmm. They go, well, why, why doesn't it feature more, you know, why does it feature John von Neumann okay. and, and his role in that? <laughs> Um, and, and the thing is, because the movie, the answer to all of these things is that the movie is called Oppenheimer. It's not called, uh, the Manhattan project. It's not called Hiroshima. It's not called the story of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. It's called, so it is Oppenheimer's story. And there's certain people, I went back to the book actually, and, and von Neumann did sort of, uh, he designed the, uh, implosion lenses for the plutonium bomb, the Nagasaki bomb, but he really only visited Los Alamos a little bit. 
his his importance and his huge importance in the history of science is was sort of elsewhere. You know, Oppenheimer never uh, he didn't go to the Pacific to uh, observe the bomb, which some people from uh, Los Alamos did. So these things that are sort of this are left out. That's because they didn't pertain to Oppenheimer and the. The logic of the movie is that the color sequences are Oppenheimer's experience, which is where it allows for that kind of more imaginative subjectivity about mm. how he might have been feeling at certain points. And then the black and white stuff is objective and enables you to just see characters talking without Oppenheimer being there. And so many, many people have gone to see this movie and you can't say to them, well, you should know this, that you should know the book or that you should know the history or that you should know Christopher Nolan's intentions. But Nolan's intentions, as he explains them, like they, it totally holds up. It's like, that is the approach. You know, uh, one criticism, Richard Brody in the New Yorker always drives me mental. And he was like, well, why, and then why, why hasn't he done the voiceover? Why hasn't he done more of what Oppenheimer was thinking? And it's like, well, this is a movie in which most of the dialogue comes from the book or other sources and it's not necessarily appear in the same place sometimes something that somebody wrote in a letter is obviously delivered as dialogue but it's what it is felt can be known about what Oppenheimer was thinking which is a really like a it's a historian's principle rather than an artist's principle you know that often we watch a movie and an artist it, you don't a lot of times someone does something like Churchill and they don't stop at like, well, who knows exactly what Churchill was thinking at this moment? They just go, we're going to show it. We're going to invent a scene. He's going to walk on the, tube, on the tube and they're going to tell him. Right. So what this does is it kind of has this quite respectful point at which it won't go beyond. And they're just going, well, this is how this is what Oppenheimer said and this is how he behaved. And, you know, and, and the, 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 there was this ambivalence. And the idea that you would then... It, you know, invent loads of dialogue or God forbid a voiceover. And I also feel that this actually reveals the prejudices, the biases of the critics, because I think a lot of the critics, I think a lot of people misread the source of Oppenheimer's angst. And I, don't, I think Nolan gets it entirely right, which is that what he was concerned about, and this is really driven home in the final scene with Einstein, he was concerned that he had helped create something that would, could potentially, you know, bring about the, the death of all things. <laughs> Not quite. He was asked if, if humanity could completely destroy himself by Edward R. Murrow in an interview. And he went, Not quite. He goes, But I think it could destroy enough that you would have to ask whether what remained was truly human. <laughs> very dark way of putting it. This not tremendously reassuring. This is what he was concerned about, not primarily about guilt over Hiroshima. And I think that's what I think a lot of people assume. That, that, mm. that the main issue was that he felt really bad. Now, he had no say. None of the physicists had any say. They were in the meetings, but they had no power to decide whether, when, where it would be dropped. So, yes, he felt guilty in that when he says to Truman, again, true, true story, you know, that he felt he had blood on his hands. But that wasn't primarily what he, what he then talked about in the following years. He was, he was really, really concerned about the future and what this meant for the future. And most of the, the other physicists, including ones who were far more kind of, I think, became far more anti-nuclear, 
it's the same thing. That's what they were talking about. Like, how can we prevent something worse from happening? The actual guilt over Hiroshima and Nagasaki was, it was there, but it was muted by the, by the knowledge that, that they had no say in it. Like, they, they, they had built the weapon, but they hadn't decided whether to drop it. And so there was a limit to how guilty they could feel. And that, what guilt they did feel was largely projected into the sort of unknown future about like what, what could happen. And I thought that was a really important distinction that's in the movie and found it strange when some people were annoyed that they were going, why don't they show Oppenheimer speaking to my priorities or how I think he should have felt? That's interesting. It's also because he's, he's a very difficult person to get a handle on, either reading about him or in the film. Mm. You know, even when you get to the sort of tail end of the film and under interrogation, he's asked, when did your moral qualms begin? His answer's there. You know, you're, you're not sure, having watched the film, actually entirely what the answer to that is. And his answers are as unsatisfying to the audience as they are to his inquisitors. So that part is is quite interesting. And I think you, if, as soon as you had a voiceover, you've completely fucked yourself. I mean, film works best and most powerfully when it's communicated through minor emotional changes in an actor's face. Film is always slightly on the outside. It's not literature. It can't really successfully get inside of people. You have to do it by the externality. And it's done that about as well as could possibly be done. Both that criticism and mine are based on a, a, this sort of very unfashionable film criticism, you know, which is sneered at, which is basically, why didn't you make a different film? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I don't think that that kind of criticism should be sneered at quite so much, or at least that there's different kinds of it. So whenever you get to, especially biopics, you sort of think you have many aspects of a person's life to look at, right? So there's a difference between the story that you tell with someone's life and the politics that you're telling with something. When it comes to someone's life, I mean, I felt the same way recently with that, that Elvis, well, yeah. where I, I'm sort of mostly watching, went, okay, I've seen this one. This is about the really successful rock star who falls apart and the yeah. drugs. And most of the time I thought, what I kind of want to watch a film about is a biopic of like, of Elvis's thrusting pelvis, which felt like this cultural explosion of sort mm. of women discovering this thing while watching. And I was like, that's the most vivid part to me. And I kind of wish we could focus on this aspect rather than the more traditional one. And I think I felt the same here with the end of the world. The more complex thing you get to is when I wish you made a film differently in terms of the politics. So some of the criticisms that I've seen, the two most pronounced ones online, are A, about not showing the suffering of the Japanese, as you just alluded to, and the other about not showing the suffering of the predominantly Latin American communities in New Mexico who've been moved. Like Those I find much harder to sort of grapple with. I mean, I have to say, like on the, and I do say this as someone that's like, <laughs> has Latin American family in New Mexico. Right, <laughs> like, right, you know, right. But it's just like, I don't, it's just like, I get that. But but this film is about what someone experiences. It, you know, it's, it's, it, this is not a different thing. I don't need to see Well, that, that was the thing. That is not to do with Oppenheimer's story, really. I mean, I just found that, I mean, I appreciate now that the, the, the discourse being what it is, that people want to add their own, they want to bring their own political agendas and that maybe they feel like, well, look, someone probably isn't going to make a movie about the Manhattan Project for a very long time. And therefore we want it to represent everything. But how you would fit in more than an extremely token way. Yes, yes. Stuff that, that, that played out over the following 
decades. And then therefore, presumably, you'd have to go into kind of like, well, did working with the bomb, was that the reason why people like Oppenheimer and Nils Bohr uh, died of cancer? I mean, Oppenheimer probably more than five packs of cigarettes a day, I would say. <laughs> you know, but so, so that's the problem. And, therefore, and similarly, if you're going to represent the suffering of Hiroshima, it's like, well, this was in a war. Do we then also have to show the suffering inflicted by the Japanese army? Like, because otherwise you're just showing it as if just like this, this is this just sort of, why would they do such a thing? So this is, I think, the problem. You sort of, you go, well, why didn't they acknowledge that? And it's like, well, are you going to acknowledge that properly? Or are you going to do it to tick a box to make a political signal? Well, they're slightly different examples, aren't they? Because, you see, on, on the communities in New Mexico, it's just not about that and therefore not covered. Yeah. When it comes to what happens in Japan, it is covered through the prism of what Nolan wants to talk about, which is Oppenheimer. The most affecting scenes in this film are just his face as his mind starts to crumble under the weight of what has taken place. One of them is when he makes uh, the speech, mm -hmm. the thumping of the feet, which is an almost unbearable scene to yeah, watch. Yeah. Like It's really affecting. I think the most well-made scene in that film. And the second is when someone starts reading out about the casualties in Hiroshima of the people that thought they were lucky in the houses, but actually they, they died in the hours and weeks afterwards. And his face, it's not correct to say that the experience of the Japanese is not in this film. It's that it's expressed through the prism of Oppenheimer, because this is the film of Oppenheimer's story. And so it's seen through his face as those statistics are read. Yeah, and I also feel like, you know, I suppose my own moral political bias there is that to not use intense suffering just as a, you know, as a visual effect. You know, I, get, I really hate it, the amount of times that just a bunch of extras are used to represent the Holocaust in a film that isn't really about that. You know, I mm. find that super, I think I was using the first like X-Men movie or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like just like, I, I find that kind of like wildly offensive. And there are other movies like that when they're not really about the Holocaust, but that you have a scene where you just, you just show basically suffering Jewish people and it's just like okay we've done we've, we've done that <laughs> they don't have characters they don't have lives they, 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 it's just I, I, I so I, I found the idea of a, of a kind of like token five minutes of exceptional kind of like makeup work special effects to show the effects of Hiroshima I think would have been like considerably worse well it wouldn't be pertinent to this film for the reasons that you're laying out However, and this comes back to my, I kind of wanted it to be something else. That there was a moment here, an opportunity to talk about something. And I think it is talked about in a major way in that film. And I think it will have an effect on people. But if it was a different film, then you would have the avenue to look at what happened to the Japanese outside of the reaction to Oppenheimer. Now, you're, I think you're mostly right in those examples that you're talking about, about, you know, real life suffering, you know, turned into entertainment. But there are other cases that you can think of. I mean, the obvious one is sort of Saving Private Ryan, where I think actually the depiction of suffering, particularly through war, has like a really concerted effect on how people think about political issues in their own time. So that the image, which we've never gotten past, which is basically the image of, you know, the, the, the boat sort of thing goes down. It's in the opening five minutes of that film and everyone dies instantly. Mm which is now sort of the sort of default mechanism for portraying that, 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 that sort of theater, I think had a really profound effect on people's think, thoughts about war. And it sort of emotion, it stuck with them emotionally. And it's not inconceivable to me 
that in this film, which was quite an emotionally pounding film, that if that had been there, there would have been, that that could have been the kind of thing that could have stuck with people. And you see, because of the ending of our episode, you're going to disagree with this, but because of the ending of our episode, the thing that got me, the thing that upsets me most about the nuclear debate is the silence around it, the lack of talk around it. That suddenly now that it's in people's consciousness, there is a bit of me that even though I recognize it goes against the film as it was, wish that there was a film that had grappled with that very directly because there might have been an opportunity in this short window to get people to think about what we've got. Okay, so well, I've got two responses. Like, I, I do hate that you should have made a different movie argument. And I think perhaps what some people are saying is like, I would like to talk about another thing from this same period, which I think is totally legitimate, but it always has to be framed. I think... It has to be framed in a criticism of the film. So I thought the fact that people were just going, look, you know, there's movies come out. It's really important to remember that there were actually these um, the effects of fallout on people living in New Mexico, which is totally valid. Like another thing I saw phrased as a criticism, which I think was almost another sidebar, Mm. was like, well, why aren't there many women at Los Alamos? Mm -hmm. You know, and the thing is, if you read, I've read many, many books about the Manhattan Project. There were women there, many of them though were, and scientists, but many of them came to Los Alamos as wives of other mm-hmm. scientists. It was a very male environment. And so there were women involved, but the idea that that was something that the film should have judged up or foregrounded would not really have been accurate. But what I do think was great was people going, well, okay, here's my opportunity to write an article about the women of the Manhattan Project, which yes, is yes, super informative. Yeah. So I prefer to frame it like that. Not like the film should have done this, mm-hmm. but now that the film has started a debate, here is my contribution. Here is my, you know, bit of sort of hidden history that I'd like to, to bring into it. I think also what I think is the truth of the matter doesn't lend itself to a more moralizing approach. It's not about moral decision-making. It's not about you had a choice to do one thing, you did another thing, that was bad, right? Therefore, it makes it quite hard to go right or wrong. So the whole story, as we discussed in the nuclear war episodes, the whole story of the Manhattan Project is that they, it was sort of one of like scientific inevitability that as soon as fission was achieved, many people, including Oppenheimer, including Szilard, were like, bombs are inevitable. Mm-hmm. And fission has been achieved in Germany. If Hitler can build a bomb, he will build a bomb and he will use it and he will use it to win the war, right? That keeps them going until, you know, to at least D-Day. It's going to happen and we need to do it first. And a lot of these people are, um, you know, European exiles. A lot of them are Jewish. That is a morally valid uh, thing that they, w- that they were doing. Then, of course, you get into the point where, okay, the Nazis are losing. Oh, a lot of people haven't really thought about using it against Japan and so on. And so it becomes much more complex and there are more uh, fractures within, within the Manhattan Project. There was still this sense of there was this inevitability. And where I disagree with Nolan, not in the movie, but in his press oh. tour, is he said, you could argue that Oppenheimer is the most important person who ever lived because this is the most important invention. But I think the film itself sort of suggests that it was going to happen anyway. 
If Oppenheimer had said no, or if he hadn't got his security clearance in the first place, or if Leslie Groves hadn't trusted him, because Leslie Groves was in charge, the Matt Damon character, then somebody else would have done it. There were these amazing physicists there. You know, we see them in there, Hans Bethe and uh, Edward Teller and uh, Edward Lawrence. So it was going to happen. And so that to me is the, that's the truth of the, the history. And that to me is also in the movie. So it's not as if the choices that Oppenheimer made changed history. I don't believe, I mean, he was a very good leader of the of Los Alamos, but I don't believe that it wouldn't have happened um, without him. And, and so the story of nuclear war, which I think nuclear weapons, which I think we, we, we did in the episodes, we just say there is just so much inevitability. This happens, therefore this happens, then this happens, then mm. this happens. Now, I don't think it was inevitable that you used the bombs on Japan, but certainly that was what the American government felt. They go, well, if we don't, and, and you know, the argument that, that Edward Teller made was that if we don't use the bomb in this war, then it will lead to the next, it will guarantee the next war. If people cannot see how powerful and horrific this weapon is, then they won't believe it. And therefore they will be more likely to use it. And th this will scare people from using it, which you could argue historically is what it has done. So that to me is so much more interesting and true than a morality play in, you know, sort of Faustian morality play where it's like, well, you've done this, you've done this bad thing and now you have to live with it. Because if you look at the decision-making process, I'm not sure if there was any point at which Oppenheimer made the wrong decision based on what was true at that time. I, yes. I suppose, I suppose yeah. he could have quit. He could have quit as soon as they were talking about using on Japan. He could have walked off. But he wouldn't have stopped, which would maybe he would have felt better mm -hmm. because one guy, Joseph Rotblatt, did in fact leave when he was like, Hitler's going to be defeated. Therefore, I don't want to work on the bomb anymore. But it wouldn't have changed. The bomb would have been made and it would have been used. So I think that's far more interesting than a war is hell morality play. You're right. I mean, he definitely shouldn't have done the war as home or anything, but he's obviously dealing with the experiences of a man who's just decided he can destroy the world. And and the, that is a kind of morality. I mean, what they're dealing with is like how your moral bearing holds up under this scenario. I think the final few seconds of that film, that's very much what you're being told. And I think rightly, because how, how can you avoid that story? I mean, that's one of the most interesting stories I can imagine anyone telling. Mm. You know, what is the experience of the person who invented the technology to destroy the world? think about the representation of the other people in this film i'm thinking of like zillard and niels bohr and well because obviously i was a bit of a nerd about this i wanted more zillard he's very 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 small role edward lawrence was sort of perfect this kind of like, sort of conservative bro-y <laughs> this is just heart near i thought that was spot on kenneth browner should not do accents that's just a, a rule yes so yeah niels bohr not so great edward teller not a great accent but I thought a fascinating character, like a really good performance. Mm -hmm. Got his sort of brooding and his awkwardness. And the great thing about Teller, and I've just been doing some more research on him and reading bits of his memoirs and stuff, is that he really wasn't ambivalent. He really wasn't very ambivalent. And weirdly, in his memoirs, he later just goes, uh, 
we should never have bombed Hiroshima. And yet as a personality type, he was obsessed. He was obsessed with building the hydrogen bomb. And he went down dead ends, scientific dead ends. It actually kind of hurt him as a scientist because he was so single-minded and he didn't have doubts. Um, and someone like Oppenheimer just had so many more doubts and a lot of time doubt makes you like a better scientist. You're just mm. going, well, what if this doesn't work? Yeah. And, yeah. and so the bit that I, I loved and it wrote a little piece for BBC Culture about it was the, the atmospheric ignition theory is in there. And functions almost as a metaphor for the whole. Right, because it's an amazing thing. And it's entirely true that, 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 that Teller was working on this idea for the hydrogen bomb in 42. And they worked out if the idea of the hydrogen bomb is to use the fission bomb to trigger a thermonuclear reaction. And therefore they thought, well, could a fission bomb not trigger a thermonuclear reaction in the, the air or sea? Could this set off hydrogen atoms in uh, the sea or nitrogen atoms in the um, in the atmosphere? And he kind of mentions like, well, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, so Oppenheimer then goes and tells us <laughs> somebody else in another wing of the project, Arthur Compton, who's basically like, well, we should just not do this then. Like, unless you can prove this is impossible, we should just stop making the bomb. And this was all known about like three years. Matt Damon's character was not on the night going like, so what's this? Sure, sure. That okay. was made up. And then Teller, Days before Trinity, just runs the calculations again. Enrico Fermi says, "Can you can you do it again?" <laughs> and Teller comes up and goes, "Not just it's near zero, but that he was saying that it is literally impossible to generate enough heat for okay. that to happen." Mm -hmm. But I loved the way the film used that because that was the this sort of you know really sort of far out, and it turns out sort of impossible theory, but believed. And that there are accounts, there are eyewitnesses of people at Trinity saying that for a few seconds, they thought that it had happened mm -hmm. because the, the, the white blast lasted, I think, for 100 seconds before you heard the boom. Holy shit. It's an incredibly long time of mm. just this white silence. That bit in the movie where it's white and silent. Which it's almost think, real time. It's like, yeah, it's basically real. Like that is what it was like. And so a couple of, you know, really quite prominent people in the, in the project were like, Maybe the calculations were wrong. Maybe mm. this is actually the end of the world, which is astonishing. And and I thought the way he used that, and then he comes back to that with Einstein, mm -hmm. and can use it as a comedy subplot because he actually gets quite a lot of humour out of that in a not very funny film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Groves is just going near zero, and <laughs> well, of course, in uh, you know, in science, there's never going to zero. It turns out actually, in reality, it probably was zero because there were these like two sets of calculations. That was a great, it's a, such a tiny little footnote. Like it appears in most of the history books, but it's like one page because it basically, it was this theory just didn't hold water. And to make that the one point at which you really were like, we could end the world, not some way down the line. If, yes, yes. If there's a nuclear war. But with a button. <laughs> but right now, yeah. and we would be responsible for ending the world. And there was, and there was this tiny little sort of like atom of uncertainty of like, maybe think it's worth properly tipping the hat to what Nolan does in general. I don't know of another mainstream director who has so much faith in the audience. I don't know of many other cultural products released to the mainstream in any area, whether it's music or literature or film, that expect so much of their audience. You know, in this film, because I have some grounding in who these people are, I was kind of able to just keep on track, mm. right? But it's sort of half hours 
well, what if you never fucking heard of Heisenberg? You know, what if you just like a quick flash here and a quick flash there, which of course is how a Nolan film typically feels, right? That's how Tenet feels, yeah, so, yeah. you know. He is someone who genuinely believes in people's intelligence and you can raise lots of problems with Nolan. I think he's quite a cold fish, really. He's sure. not emotionally very well. I think the women in his films are not treated particularly well. I think there's right. quite a like a reactionary tendency in some of his films that you see in something like The Dark Knight Rises. Mm. But he just believes in the intelligence of his audience and the audience turn up for it. And to see that process, someone believe that way and, and, and to get really good results from it, regardless of whether you feel strong about one individual project or not, you just think he's a tremendously positive cultural force. Well, you can pick out there are a few lines where it's a little bit clangy, <laughs> a little bit awkward. And the name of that senator... John F. Kennedy, you know what I mean? <laughs> so there are those bits, but, but a lot of biopic scripts, and I would say Elvis being an example, it is nothing but lines like that. It's nothing but like, like, Elvis, I am your wife. <laughs> you know, or I just, never want to hear you put on that accent again. Just this, <laughs> this boy's going to change rock and roll. <laughs> it's nothing but that. And so there's so little of that in this whole bit. So I was sitting in a, in a cinema on opening weekend. We could only sit really close to the front, which is not the best place to, to watch it from. But I didn't see any, many people feeling internally restless at certain points. But you generally felt that a lot of people were just like, okay, so what's his deal? Who's Why does Louis Strauss hate him? Mm. Uh, who's the, Okay, so this guy, this is Ernest Lawrence. And he's invented like a cyclotron. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? There is an extraordinary amount of information. And like I said, there's stuff like that. there are people in there. There are no composite characters. There are people you will see, Luis Alvarez or mm. Leo Szilard. Mm. And most people watching that would not know who these people are. They kind of get what they were saying, what their role in the movie was, but they wouldn't know who they were. And there was, there was, there was barely any... Sim, you know, dumbing down, simplifying to make mm -hmm. a film that's mm -hmm. that's that exciting, that is that historically accurate about an enormously complex story. I thought it was kind of wonderful, and I do feel like, of course, you can always criticize. You always go this, that, and the other. Um, you could have done this better. You could have done that better. But <laughs> I sometimes do find some criticism can seem extremely presumptuous. It's just like. <laughs> Well, if I was making uh, uh, a three-hour movie, you know, about Oppenheimer, uh, well, I would have done this. You know, when people just really casually go, well, I would have just cut 20 minutes there. And, it's, and, and I do feel like, of course, you can criticize as a viewer, but I'm not quite presumptuous enough to go, I've worked out a way that you could have done this incredibly difficult thing <laughs> better with my no filmmaking experience. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, no, I think if you just added a voiceover there and then just uh, cut out this... I, I was somewhat in awe of the achievement without thinking that it was that it was perfect. I felt like here is a mind making decisions mm -hmm. and here is immense craft to kind of manifest those decisions. And so maybe that made me more sort of, I was so impressed that maybe that made me more forgiving than some people who were a bit just like, well, I didn't like that bit and I take that bit out and so on and so forth. I think I can be quite a forgiving viewer. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm generally in favor of a film, I'm not a great nitpicker. And if I, if I take against a film, then perhaps sometimes I struggle to see where the, where the good bits are. The thing is, you know, we keep on finding when we do origin story podcasts that everything starts really intelligent in the 1800s or whatever, and then you get to our period and it's people yeah, yeah. ranting and raving about the end of the world and just complete nonsense. 
and actually he's making serious he's like a serious minded person making serious films in the current culture for that you're just like thank you with genuine nuance i mean it's 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 an origin story kind of approach like i said it's it's a historian's approach which you almost never see in movies because normally they're just like well this bit of history is inconvenient so we're just going to completely change it and he's he's got this more sort of responsible approach of like how can I integrate this? How can I use this? How can I use all my kind of like cinematic magic to make this move, you know, to make this look great, to make this feel like it's got energy? And it, it actually makes you feel that it's it's sort of a bit lazy if you just go, well, this, you know, this thing that really happened is inconvenient to my story, so I'm going to completely, <laughs> completely change it, which I do think is legitimate, but it also seems like maybe it's lazy. Maybe it's going, I cannot work all out a way to make the truth dramatically interesting so i'm just going to replace it but most importantly do you think you got away with wearing the barbie dress to the oppenheimer screening or, or were people still kind of uncertain went down better than wearing the oppenheimer trousers to the <laughs> to barbie, the barbie screening <laughs> and smoking all the time <laughs> Um, okay, <laughs> thank you very much for sticking with us, guys. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a patron-only podcast. The period that we most uh, rely on patrons is now, basically, when we're in between seasons. So we know that we don't we start putting out less product than before, but this is when we do the research that makes any of this podcast possible. So thank you very much for your continued support. Please do give if you don't already, and you can afford to do so. Uh, and the details are at... Patreon slash origin story pod. And as a little sweetener, um, we will be putting out roughly fortnightly bonus episodes where we will take on a, a topic that maybe can't sustain a whole episode, but which has a fascinating origin story uh, behind it and discussing that. So it's a sort of taster of the of the series while you wait for season four. And coming up in our special edition podcast over the next few weeks, The Dreyfus Affair and Horseshoe Theory. <laughs>